We're going to worship this morning, um, continue to worship through our teaching and learning and our continued um, study of the book of Hebrews. And the freedom that Christ gives us, um, especially, you know, again, as we were thinking about this and I was thinking about this sermon series, thinking about re-entry and this idea that we all have of re-entering into um, uh, whatever our world looks like in re-entry. And certainly that's a complex conversation. And as we all know, as our, uh, the authorities are thinking about re-entry, as schools are thinking about re-entry, and, and certainly as we as a church community think about re-entry, but we also want to think about this whole idea of reentry coming out of the idea of Easter that happened several weeks ago. Now I think we're about five or six weeks removed from Easter that for the disciples after the resurrection of Christ, everything was new and different for them. And they had to reenter ministry, thinking about things very differently without the physical presence of Christ, um, as, especially after Pentecost, Christ ascended to heaven. And then they had to think about what it meant for them to re-enter ministry and build the church um, with this new and different world that they were experiencing. So we can think about that in terms of this new and different world that we're experiencing. So we want to think this morning about how we are free to live today because of what Christ did and how that equips us to live into this new reality. And to start, I'd like to um, think with you about some, some, something that's pretty near and dear to me and my family. And then I, wa I want you to think with me about dogs. Um, the Elgersmas have two dogs. If you saw last week's Mother's Day video, you saw um, our two dogs being held by Troy and by Cameron for their Mother's Day, Day video, the brown dog. Um, that's Kobe. Kobe's uh, our Border Collie Australian Shepherd mix, and Shadow is a um, black lab sort of beef stew of a whole lot of different things. Um, but great dogs. We love our dogs. Um, they're quite energetic, and they love to play fetch. Now, the Elgersmas, we have a very relatively small backyard. Um, it goes the length of our house, but it's not very deep, um, and part of it is taken up with a small pool that we enjoy. Um, but occasionally, we'll go outside with our dogs and play fetch. Now, because we have a Border Collie uh, uh, Aussie mix, that's Kobe, um, and because Shadow is a, a bigger black lab, they can run. These dogs can go and run, but in our backyard, there's simply not enough space for them to get up to full speed. If we throw the tennis ball from the other side of the pool and they go and chase the tennis ball, they basically get up to top speed for maybe a step and then they got to slow down. Otherwise, they'll run into the fence on the other side and Shadow, our dog, is not smart enough sometimes and he still runs into the, bench, the, the fence and the bushes on the other side. But there's just not enough space. They're limited in what they can experience as these two dogs. Now, if we were to take our dogs to, let's say, a vacant schoolyard, and heavens knows all of our schoolyards right now are vacant, and we were to take them with the tennis ball, oh boy we'd see full speed. And I can tell you, because we've seen our dogs at full speed, they can haul, they just, they move. And if you throw the ball as far as you can, they're gonna go off and take off, and, and oftentimes, um, Shadow's gotten better at it that actually retrieves the ball and lets you throw it again. Kobe just stands there and looks at you because she's smarter than everybody, and she just barks at you the whole time with this tennis ball in her mouth and she won't give it back because that's the game she likes to play. If we went to that full space, 
we would see our dogs in the fullness of who they are without limitation. But in our backyard, we see the limitation that stops them from the fullness of who they are as dogs that can, at full speed, play fetch. I want to think with you this morning about what sort of limitations stop us from experiencing the full and complete freedom in Christ. How are we making our yard small? How are we limiting ourselves from experiencing the fullness of what God has for us? And how can we learn to expand our fences? and experience more of what God has for us in freedom. That's where we're going to spend some time today from Hebrews chapter 9. I encourage you to turn and open your Bibles there. Um, in fact, you kids want to encourage you to be a part of this. We're going to bless you right now as you are a part of what we do with God's Word. If you would stand where you are, and parents, if you would raise your hand and blessing to your kids as they partake with us in God's Word, our blessing to them is this this morning. May you always know God's love and kids turn to your moms and dads family and friends in the room and you give them that same blessing one two three may you always know God's love too we're going to be blessed together with God's word this morning would you pray for me for that blessing father be present with us meet our kids where they are that they understand Lord the limitations they have and how they can grow the fences beyond what they are now so that they can experience more of the freedom that you have given them to serve and love you I pray that for moms and dads I pray that for all of our senior saints as well everyone in our community that we can experience more of who you are because of your shed blood because of the empty tomb Lord you have given us the fullness of the experience of being able to live fully and completely for you in fact you command it when you say to us love the Lord your God with all May we love you with all. May we love our neighbor with all. And in doing so, may we experience more of you in our world. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you again, turn in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to begin at verse 11, and we'll read through verse 14 to begin. It says this there. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of his, this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. So we thinking, we're thinking here, and we're thinking uh, because this is the writer, generally we believe the writer of Hebrews is Paul. Paul knows his Old Testament really well. And this book is a book that he's writing to people who are Jewish, at least have some Jewish awareness in their life. And because they would have Jewish awareness, when he speaks about Old Testament priesthood and Old Testament tabernacle, these are not people who are unfamiliar with this. 
And they knew the actions of a priest in the Old Testament was to take a sheep offered by the people, and then they had to ceremonially, they had to cut that sheep open in order to receive the blood. The blood went on the altar. It also went on the bowl. There were other things that were, um, that on which the blood was scattered, including the people, and that blood in its being scattered made them clean. So Paul knows that the people who are reading this have an understanding of how that Old Testament priesthood worked. But what he's saying is, friends, that old way of doing things was only temporary, and it only worked for, for enough of the outwardness of people to be clean, the sins outward to be forgiven. In essence, what the writing is saying here is that the inward wasn't changed. But in Jesus, that's the thing. It's a different type of sacrifice. The tabernacle is not human-made. As it says, made by, it is not a creation of man. It's a creation of God. The body of Jesus, which was the sacrifice, is a creation of God. And in Christ's perfection, his blood, not him offering a sacrifice, but him offering himself, meant that when he went into the, the tabernacle, not made by human hands, and offered a sacrifice, that it was a different thing. It didn't just clean the outside, it cleans the inside. And it's something that sustains for always, it says, the, for all. Part of Christ's forgiveness means that your sins are covered forever. All sin that you and I commit. His infinite power comes through sacrifice, and there's always enough grace. So no matter if you continue to sin, which you will, no matter if you continue to be imperfect, which you will be, Christ's offer of himself as the sacrifice, as the new high priest, means that your sins are always forgiven. And it also speaks to us that we're free from the power of our sin, but there's still work to do. What does it say in verse 14? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may what? Serve the living God. So out of this gift of a new priesthood, new sacrifice that forgives sins once and for all, we then have responsibility to serve the living God. In essence, what Paul is introducing us to here is the entire theme of the message that because of Christ doing things differently than what was before, and he's done it for always, that means that we can then live in service to God, or another word that we might use is gratitude. And we can do so with full and complete freedom. Let's continue to read. We're going to read just verse 15 for now. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Hear those words. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So, okay, we're hearing about Christ and the new covenant, and we're also hearing, what does it end there? It says, free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So what's the first covenant? 
What is, what is the thing that we are called to in the first covenant? Anyone know? We're called to what? Obey the law, right? That's what we're called to do. If you look at the books of Deuteronomy, you look at the books of Leviticus, there's even some in the book of Exodus, you see all the right things to do. That's the new covenant. And we're, we, the, the Jewish people, God's people, lived under the power of that first covenant of doing the right things and getting it right. But it didn't work. And so now we hear about this new covenant, and we're under the new covenant. But as we said last week, we still have a problem. And that problem is, is that we often still act like we're under the first covenant, right? We talked last week about guilt and how guilt still shows itself in our lives. Why? Because we mess things up. I want to ask the question a little differently this morning. Here's how I ask the question. Are we motivated more by the Ten Commandments or the Greatest Commandment? The Ten Commandments is the idea of, remember how it's phrased, right? We know the Ten Commandments well. Thou shalt not, right? Doing all the things or not doing the, 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 the uh, things we shouldn't do, that's how we think about life. And that's the old covenant power. And oftentimes that old covenant power still has power in our lives because we still think often about how we can try to get it right. But what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not captured, the greatest commandment, by any thou shalt not. It is captured by love. Which means that as followers of Jesus under the new covenant with Christ's new priesthood, not of a human line, in a new tabernacle, not of a human creation, that we live in this new space of being able to love God with the fullness of all that we are. We're free to love him. Why? Because our sins are forgiven for always. There's always enough grace. And out of knowing that and living into that love, we do what it is that verse 14 said to us, that we may serve the living God with the gratitude that we have been given. It's a shift for us, friends. And oftentimes it's a shift that means there has to be some breaking in us as followers of Jesus because some of those ideas are so ingrained of doing it right of not messing it up, of if we mess up, feeling this level of guilt. Oh God, I am such a sinner. I'm so broken. Yes, that is true, friends. We are sinners. But we know God's grace is sufficient for us in Jesus Christ. He's forgiven that sin, and he's promised you and I that he has forgiven that sin. Don't let that consumption of wanting to do things right all the time take away your freedom. Because I know people who have had their freedom stolen by guilt. Freedom stolen by conviction. I'm here to tell you, you're messed up. And I am too. And that's not going to change. 
because no matter what, until Christ comes again, that messed upness is still going to be real for us. Because not being messed up means that things are perfect. And we know in this life, there is nothing perfect except Jesus. And if that's the case, I can dwell in that world where I know my life is messed up, where your life is messed up. I can live in that world constantly, and people do that often. Or I can simply say, what did Christ do to take me out of my messed upness? He gave himself. He gave his blood. He gave his life. He gave his, his everything for us. And so I, despite the fact that I'm always messed up, have been redeemed by him being perfect and offering himself. Yeah, I messed up. But Christ has made a way for me to be redeemed. Can I live in this world, please? This world of joy and life? Of acknowledging every moment of the day that God's grace is sufficient for me in Jesus Christ? And that today, later on, when I mess things up again, that his grace is sufficient for that moment, and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and five years from now, and ten years from now, that Christ's grace is sufficient for all those things, and I don't have to be consumed by my messed upness. I can instead be consumed by how good God is to me. And I can say, with my service to him, with my life, verse 14, thank you. Thank you for what you did to take me out of this and put me in this place. Christ has given us the freedom to live today, not consumed by sin, not consumed by guilt, not consumed by the obligation to get it right, but instead consumed by gratitude for what it is that he has given us. Verse 16 through 22. In the case of a will, this is an interesting discussion here, by the way. Pay, pay close attention to these verses. It's interesting. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Okay, so we're not talking about will, I want you to do something. We're talking about a will, last will and testament. Okay, so you're reading this passage. This is a last will and testament sort of passage. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Something had to die. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." Here's what we're capturing in this passage. First of all, we're capturing the power and the necessity of blood. That's how God created the relationship of restoration with his people. And certainly there are people who argue, argue God, why did you have to use blood? I, I don't know that answer. I honestly don't, because I'm not God. But what I can tell you is that he did it. 
he did do it that way. He said, in the Old Testament, if there was going to be forgiveness of sins, it was going to be through blood. That's how you made things clean. Seems counterintuitive to me, but I'm not God. God's God. He makes, he makes the way things go. So he said blood. Not only do we hear that blood has power, and that's the way that God designed it, but we also hear that there is a power of a will. A will, last will in testament. And that that last will in testament of God in the old covenant was that you will obey me. But that changes, right? There's a... called it already, the new covenant. Who made the new covenant? Who was it? It was, come on, Sunday school answer, folks. Who made the new covenant? Jesus. It's Jesus. And so Jesus' will then has to be enacted. What's his will? Well, there's a lot of things that we might say. I'm going to give you an example of what I think what Christ's will was. In order to do that, I need you to turn in your Bibles. John chapter 17. Turn your Bibles, John chapter 17. Now, why would I say that this is the will of Jesus? Two reasons. Because he is making it clear that he has communicated something directly to the Father about what will happen in the future. That seems to be a will, right? The second thing is that it is happening when? John 17 happens when? Right before Christ gets imprisoned and ultimately crucified. And if you know anything about last wills and testaments, you know that they become most poignant when? Just before someone dies. In fact, there are adjustments oftentimes when someone's in a hospital just before they die so that they can make sure their last will and testament is in order. So Jesus says some things here that are striking to me, and you could read the whole chapter of John 17 in order to capture his will, but I just want to focus specifically for a moment about starting at verse 20. Jesus' last will and testament. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also that those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now there's a lot there. But here's what I want to get to. I think that in many ways Jesus is giving us in this passage, in the passage previous to it in John 17, his last will in Testament. He's in essence going before the judge, his father, and he's saying, this is what I long for, father. And you'll notice 
that the will is not yet in effect. Why? Why is the will not in effect when Jesus says it here? Because he's not dead. You wonder why Jesus had to die? Because his will had to go in effect. And you see the implications then of what his will is. It's what he longs for for his people. First of all, he wants them to be united with the Father just like Jesus is. And he wants them to be united with together just like Jesus is with the Father. And finally, he wants them to what? Be with him where he is. So, if that's the case in this we could consider Jesus' last will and testament. Is the will in effect in Hebrews chapter 9? Is it in effect? When does the will go into effect? When someone died. Jesus has died. And so his will is in effect that his people are in union together with God. His people are in union together with each other and that they will someday know the truth that they will be with the Father just like Jesus is. And that's a truth that we can know is guaranteed. And it can't be taken away. No matter how much in your messed up world you live, that truth can't be taken away. And because it can't be taken away, why be consumed with the messed up world? Because we have unity with God and with Jesus and with each other. We have a promise of an eternity in the presence of the living God, and that can't be taken away. Don't let any of the consumption of your messed upness, take away the joy to serve Christ freely. Push your fences back. Make more room. Don't allow yourself to be hindered from going full speed toward that which God has given you in Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Verse 23 to the end. It, is necessary, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in Christ's presence. Hear that. Now to appear for us in Christ's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer up himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the things to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let me start this by asking you a question. Are your sins forgiven, Sandy? Are the sins for, that you will commit tomorrow forgiven? Are the sins that you will commit 10 years from now forgiven? But you haven't confessed them yet. You haven't even done them yet. But they're forgiven, right? Sins are forgiven once and for all. We're hearing that here. That means, friends, no matter what you do tomorrow, no matter how messed up your messed upness gets, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Sure, 
It's not just that we can sit there and say, oh, I have God's grace. I can do whatever I want. We're still called to serve him in gratitude for what he has been given. But for us to be in any way focused on this world of messed upness hinders us from the ability to live into the freedom that God calls us to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. See, I know we, we need to take care of our sin. We need to deal with it, right? If you say something harmful to your, your spouse or your child or your parent, you need to confess that. Yeah, but that's because your relationship with them is broken. And you need to fix that. But already, even as you are committing that sin, it's forgiven in Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God doesn't change. Your relationship with God is always fulfilled by his grace once and for all. Jesus doesn't have to come before the throne of grace after you commit something and say, okay, God, I'm here again. Yeah, it's Jim. He messed up again. I know God. I know we've been talking to him. He's still got stuff to learn. But I got to, can you forgive Jim's sin? What are we hearing here? It's not how it works. Christ's sacrifice was enough for all of Jim's sin for eternity, all of Scott's sin for eternity, all of Glenn's sin for all of our sin for all eternity. Our relationship with him through Jesus is sure. And that's not going to change. Don't put the governor on to hinder you from living into the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. You know what a governor is? I remember finding out what a governor was when I was uh, 16 years old. My parents had a 1987 Chrysler K car. Remember those things? Horrible car. Ridiculous. And we even, it got worse. We got a station wagon. Blue station wagon K car. Worst car ever. It was horrible. Well, I was, okay, I'm going to confess my foolishness. This, this, is, this is bad. This is, this is a bad idea. This is bad news. But when I was 16 years old, we were, um, the friends were camping somewhere. And I drove with another friend, and we went to where our friends were camping. And we thought, okay, we'll, we'll hang out with them for a little while. We weren't, weren't going to stay overnight. We were just going to stay there for the day. Um, we thought, like, halfway through the day, let's go get ice cream. So we drove down this road to where there was an ice cream spot, and we went and we got ice cream. It was about maybe five miles away. But what I noticed, because I was the guy, I had a station wagon, and I could take everybody, right? So I, I, since I took everybody, I noticed that the, construct, the road that we were on was newly constructed, perfectly straight, and perfectly smooth. 16 years old. I got friends in the car and I'm going to show off. So what do I do? On the way home from ice cream, this is my foolishness. I confess my sin. Troy, Cameron, Katie, you're not allowed to do this. I put my foot to the floor and I didn't take it off. And I grew up in Canada, so it's in kilometers an hour. I was at 165 kilometers an hour. I guess that works out to be, I don't know, maybe 100 miles an hour, something like that. And everyone was like holding on. And I was just, I, I don't know what it was. I was just laughing. I was giddy. 
But then all of a sudden, something happened to the car. And I thought I broke it, which that could have happened. I didn't break it. The governor stopped it from going any faster. You know what a governor is? Governor is when you push an engine to a certain level and go as fast as that governor will allow you to go, it won't let you to go any faster. It was 165 kilometers an hour. And I, no matter what I did, couldn't push that pedal anymore to make that thing go any faster than it already was. Praise be to God. Everyone was okay. I would never do anything the likes of that ever again. And again, all you kids out there, learn from me. Don't be foolish. That's dangerous. Don't ever do it. But what I learned was, besides learning I should never do that again, that there is a limit to how fast you can go when you allow something to put that limit on. Friends, as followers of Jesus, what limits us? What's our governor? What stops us from experiencing the fullness of God's grace in all of its fullness? What stops us from being able to live lives of gratitude and thankfulness in such a way that we are not consumed by guilt or conviction over sin, but we are instead consumed by the life and the gift and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ that changes everything so much so that our sins of tomorrow are already forgiven. That the foolishness of our 20s is already forgiven. That our foolishness of our 40s is already forgiven. The foolishness of our 80s is already forgiven. In all things, we are forgiven now for everything that we have ever known because Christ has interceded before the Father once and for all. And if that's the case, you and I don't leave our houses in the morning worried about whether or not Christ can cover us for the day. He's promised he already has. And he always will. And that's never going to change. You and I are free to live into today in everything that God has for us. No fences, no governor, no limitations. Would you pray with me? You have given us this gift of yourself, the perfect sacrifice. And now you give us the gifts of your presence before the Father. You have interceded for us, and that forgiveness that you offer is in effect for always. Thank you for that gift, O Jesus. Thank you for that gift, O Father. Thank you for that gift, Holy Spirit, that now equips us to live in gratitude for always for that gift. Lord, may we do so, Lord, in the fullness of life, with freedom, knowing there is no governor, there is no fences, there are no limitations, because your forgiveness, your grace is always in effect for us. Equip us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.